right, hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. In this episode, we are going to be talking about herbalism and drugs and natural remedies and natural um, homeopathic remedies that are being produced, how they are similar and how they differ in terms of their production and their use and how safely we can use maybe natural remedies over drugs that are produced in the pharmaceutical industry, but kind of just the discrepancy and starting a discussion around that topic. In our next episode, we are actually going to talk about this and talk about herbalism on more of a spiritual level, but we wanted to kind of hit both sides to give people an overview of, you know, different ways that maybe you could approach approach this realm of expertise. But without further ado, let's hit our What Happened on the Stage segment, and I'm going to pass it to Fel. So, Fel, go ahead and take it away. All righty. So, on this day, April 10th in 1917, Robert Burns Woodward was born. Robert was an American chemist best known for his synthesis of complex organic substances, including quinine, the well-known antimalarial in 1944 the steroids cholesterol and cortisone in 1951, and vitamin B12. In the field of antibiotics, Woodward established the structure of areomycin and teramycin, as well as synthesizing chlorophyll, the green plant pigment. Flashback to our discussion of leaves changing color. I think that was like the first or second episode. Yeah. Yeah. These, in addition to many other advances, earned him the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1965. And this actually isn't the only thing that happened on this day. Surprisingly, April 10th had a lot of really awesome scientific advancements. In 1995, the first national DNA data- database was launched in England and Wales on April 10th. In 1972, the first multilateral disarmament treaty to ban bio- essentially biological warfare and um, biological weapons was opened for signature. In 1955, on April 10th, the polio vaccine was tested as existing as a success by Dr. Jonas Salk. It was also the first year that, in 1944, on April 10th, we got the first synthetic quinine um, produced by Dr. Robert Burns Woodward, as Felicity mentioned above. And lots of other things that we're not even going to go into. If you're interested, look into the, the scientific history of this day because lots of really, really cool, really cool stuff happened. But I think this is going to be kind of a long episode, so we're going to push on forward here and talk about herbalism. So the first question we want to talk about is what exactly is herbalism? How do we define that? Uh, When I was sort of doing some preliminary research for this episode, basically the the general consensus that I came, came across was herbalism is generally using plants in a medicinal way. And that could be claims can range from mental health to physical health to spiritual health but and at least this is seen across history too it was seen medicinally like it's it's like looking at it from a holistic perspective from a mind body perspective usually and spirit is often included in there Hanny, did you have something you want to add add there or no i don't think so i think that's a pretty good definition like yeah it was so broad it was quite hard i think that's why we had to split this episode up into two because I personally don't really see herbalism as strictly medical, but yeah, I guess you're right that the holistic definition means that you can often think of it more spiritually. But I do think it's important to make that distinction because, as we'll discuss, mistaking herbalism for, I guess you can call it allopathic medicine, could lead to some major issues. So I think it's important to draw the line between the two and understand what is scientifically verified and what isn't. Okay, so then let's kind of look into and talk about how it's been applied throughout history. Phil, you kind of are our history history person here, so do you want to speak on that? Yeah, this one was also kind of kind of broad because I think historically there is not a distinction between 
herbalism and medicine, they were kind of one of this one of the same. At least prior to like the really industrialization of medicine, I honestly think herbalism and medicine were pretty much <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, herbalists were, you know, involved in medicine from a, a holistic perspective. Now, um a person who was like a doctor wasn't just an herbalist. There were other things you could do that weren't just like ingest this plant, you know, there there were spiritual things people would do to try to treat illnesses or like I would not consider the use of leeches to be herbalism that would fall more into like traditional medicine I guess at that point but I would see that in history herbalism is a part of traditional medicine and pretty much inextricable from it I think yeah, I agree with that. From the little research that I did kind of back into the history of, of herbalism and like ancient societies, I mean, herbalists were just the healers of a particular group of people. And there was no distinction being made there between the two. And I don't think it was really until kind of more recent society, I would say within the probably last like century or so, that we really began to make a very clear distinction between herbalism, allopathic medicine, and also like true, true medicine. I think probably the biggest difference when that distinction was made was when we were able to synthetically design molecules and um, that was probably a really really big shift and um, because then it became less about the herb and more about what can we actually do synthetically with um, what we have available to us this is kind of a topic but i always thought it was interesting that um surgeons actually used to be historically associated with barbers and it wasn't until um, later on that um, surgeons actually kind of became more aligned with medicine and it just shows how like lots of fields have kind of congregated into this modern idea of medicine but it definitely wasn't always that way and um, the surgeon's hall museum in edinburgh has a lot of um, information on this so it's sort of a spooky idea of going to get your hair cut and <laughs> maybe getting some surgery done while you're there wait do you know why they were associated with barbers rather than like in the medical field like we we think of them now i wish i remembered i'll have to do some more research on it because i there was an exhibition at the at the museum but i guess something to do with the use of scalpels but that the spinning pole, you know, the red spinning pole is also related somehow to surgery. Yeah, I'll need to, I need to do some more research on that. I just happen to know of the association. Interesting. We will include some of that, like links to that information below if anybody else is curious. But great, let's go ahead and then talk about how we apply herbalism in our own practices. Who wants to start? I think we all do at least a little bit of herbalism in our own practices, so we can all kind of share. Just pop off. I can go first if nobody else wants to. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> I've mentioned in a couple episodes up to this point that I've been studying alchemy for a few months and have kind of begun to dive into alchemical herbalism. And that's been really enlightening. And it's offered a very unique shift in my view of herbs, plants, and even just like in general, the usefulness of herbalism. I never really took much time to consider that it could be really useful um, and actually help with like the balance um, of your of the microcosm, which would be like you in relation to the macrocosm. Granted, I'm still very much in the research and like the basic practice phase um, myself, but I do have some recommendations for resources if people want to look into it. The Plant Podcast by Saja Papam, I hope I pronounced that correctly. He was a student of Robert Bartlett, who was a student of Frater Acker, and they are all very prominent um, alchemical herbalists within the field, and they provide really awesome perspectives of traditional herbalism and, al and, and alchemy, among other traditions. I find their work really fascinating and the way to describe things really fascinating. I will say that if Robert Bartlett, let's see, I have the book. 
I don't know where it is. It's not on my shelf right now. But I think the book is called Real Alchemy by Robert Bartlett. And it's really chemistry heavy. So just be aware of that kind of going into it. As a chemist, I'm thoroughly loving it. I'm loving every second of it. I think this is my second like read through now. But he offers a lot of really good insight into how chemistry and alchemy tie together, which is something that I've always been super interested in. Like I was saying earlier, yeah, they have really fantastic discussions on their podcast. They also have a blog that you can read. And I'll link everything with about them in the description below. And Hanny, you said there was another podcast that you would recommend for this kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. It's called the Plant Canning Podcast. Um, I've only heard a few of the episodes, but they featured um, Amy Blackburn, who wrote Blackburn's Botanicals. And it was really, really good. So I would recommend that. It had some really nice features. Yeah, for me, I I honestly don't know if I consider myself using herbalism in any sort, like in the traditional sense. I like I work with plants, like I do natural dyeing. I've talked about this and I, I do like like I'll make infused oils, but I tend to approach it from more of a spiritual perspective than I do from like an actual medicinal perspective. Like I'll, I'll drink ginger <laughs> if I'm not feeling well. But I yeah, I don't really consider myself to be an herbalist. I I often approach plants from I took a bunch of magnolia blossoms and I'm going to make a syrup out of them. Not for any medicinal purpose, but for food and more I don't know, magical purposes. So yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't really approach plants from that sort of perspective. Partly because I don't feel confident in my, in my ability to 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 work in that way, and it's just not sort of a a path that I feel called towards. I appreciate plants from a different way. I would say. Yeah, I feel I feel the same way. I actually got into um, working with plants from a kind of non occult perspective because um, I have an interest in both foraging, as I've mentioned, and also perfumery. I collect perfumes and sometimes try and make perfumes from wildcrafted ingredients. And so it wasn't until later that I sort of realized that there was a potential here to merge these two. And you can imagine that perfume making is quite, it's quite sensual, it's quite tangible. And I was wondering how I can use this correspondence in my practice. And that's how I got into reading about the more spiritual side. So I've been trying to learn a little bit more about working with plant spirits and working um, kind of maybe even poison path things eventually, although I'm taking that very slowly. But yeah, it's it's been interesting for me to shift from a more tangible physical chemist chemical perspective to a more spiritual one i definitely haven't ever tried to apply it as medicine because i feel like for me that's a very risky thing to do but we'll i guess we'll talk about that a little bit later yeah i i haven't gotten to the point of using it medically either just because i don't feel comfortable quite yet in regards of like the proper dosage and just making sure that things aren't like cross-reacting and all that kind of stuff but yeah we'll get into that here in a second Herbal remedies have formed the basis for many modern medicines, and in fact, exotic plants are still employed in drug discovery research today. Some examples that we kind of know of, know off the top of our heads and have also researched include aspirin. Willow bark was used about, you know, as far back as 3,500 years ago to relieve pain, but it wasn't until 1838 that the chemist Raphael Piriac extracted its active ingredient salicylic acid, which probably sounds familiar to many of you. And it wasn't until 59 years after that, that the drug we now know today as aspirin was synthesized via a reaction with vinegar or acetic acid, um, essentially leading to adding an acetyl group to salicylic acid, which sued the irritating effect on the stomach. Another example is the papaver somniferum or opium poppy. So historically, the Sumerians and ancient Greeks actually used poppy extracts medicinally. 
and the Arabs knew from experience that opium poppy was addictive. In 1803, several alkaloid compounds, the most notable being morphine, was reported, and later in the 1870s, this crude morphine extract was reacted with acetic anhydride to yield diacetylmorphine, which just means that you throw on two acetyl groups onto this, this structure. And diacetylmorphine is also known as heroin, which could then be readily converted to codeine, a painkiller for mild pain. So even some of the most destructive drugs, opioids, <laughs> came from natural natural products. Hanny, did you have any others? I think you had mentioned a few. Yeah, um, I thought it was quite pertinent given that we mentioned quinine so much, which is an antimalarial. Artemisina is a really, really interesting one. So that's actually the same genus as mugwort. It's not the same plant as far as I know. Basically, artemisinin was used as a traditional remedy in areas of Africa as an antimalarial, um, but it kind of got overtaken by quinine when that was synthesized because it was so effective and so cheap. And you can synthesize artemisinin from artemisinin, and it was cheaper to synthesize to quinine, so they switched over. However, the malaria parasites started to evolve resistance to drugs against it, so now they're going back towards using artemisinin because it's actually quite cheap to grow it, and they're seeing whether they can use the entire plant as a sort of a tea. And there are a few studies pointing towards the efficacy of that, although it's quite controversial. So I just thought that would be interesting that they're using the kind of historic folklore of an area to establish a medicine against a devastating parasite. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting you mentioned that because in general, when synthetic chemistry became a thing and computational libraries became really popular, there was a pretty big shift away from using natural products in chemistry um, and, and selecting for very specific compounds that we know are, are active in some way. And the reason for that was because the both the identification and the production of these compounds from plant is very costly and it's very difficult to scale up. It's really hard to reach like specific purity that you need for a, for a drug. So when like synthetic chemistry became a thing, became very popular, the use of natural products really began to decline pretty significantly. And it's only been within the last couple of decades that we've really gone back to natural products and said, you know, I think maybe we push these aside a little bit too much. They still have efficacy and can be utilized and we could use medicinal chemistry to change them and make them better in the form formulation of new drugs, which has been really, really cool to see. So it's pretty clear that herbalism has had a major effect on the pharmaceutical industry as I just talked about but the two fields are still pretty distinct and there's a certain amount of distrust between them um if you talk to a pharmaceutical like a pharmaceutical chemist will pretty much say but like this is what I've heard uh, within my own industry is you know we can't trust people who make their own salves medicines tinctures whatever because they don't undergo the same like rigorous testing that pharmaceuticals do and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this whole kind of discrepancy between herbalists and holistic healers saying well the pharmaceutical industry is only out for money and they don't care about you as the individual and trying to help you get better there's this misinformation that like drugs are full of poison that are going to kill you that's not true but you know people say that and unfortunately it's it's been pervasive throughout the community but kind of throughout this episode we want to talk about why we need pharmaceuticals when there are bioactive compounds available to us in plants and the areas where maybe pharmaceuticals are better to treat something or areas where like a holistic method using herbalism could also be effective. There's going to be quite a bit of background <laughs> happening here and we're going to do a lot of science speak. So I apologize in advance for that if you aren't um, a scientist, but I, we will kind of do our best to try and bring it down to like English and make it very understandable. So hopefully we do a, we do a decent job with that. Why do we need pharmaceuticals when we have bioactive compounds in plants? There's a couple of reasons why. And Hanny, if you want to kind of pop off with me on this, we can switch back and forth. The first is purity. So herbal remedies contain a lot of complex compounds, where pharmaceuticals typically only contain a very specific single active ingredient. And the complex mixture of these herbal remedies presents a very high capacity for harm, 
more so than a single compound, which can be tested. So keep in mind that every single compound that enters into your body has an effect. And this can often lead to adverse side effects or essentially bad side effects. And some seem to be negligible, or at the very least, we can't detect any kind of change. But not having a pure compound really complicates multiple factors. Obvious one is the treatment itself. How can we know that the effect we're seeing is actually from a specific molecule if it is one part of a very complex mixture? It's almost impossible to specifically say, you know, X is leading to Y. Purity helps us definitively say yes or no, it is this compound exerting an effect on the protein cells patient, whatever we're looking at. But to return to the discussion of adverse effects for a second, again, if we have a complex mixture, it's almost impossible for us to say with confidence that one molecule might have caused it. And this can be really important because the molecular paths in the body are not always linear. In fact, many times they're not linear and we see pathways interacting in very different areas. And so it's very possible that you could have maybe two parts of a complex mixture or, or even more all kind of activating different pathways that like collectively cause a change. And that can also make it really difficult to say, this is kind of what we're targeting. This is what we want to look at. Does it have an effect on this specifically? When you could have multiple pathways working together to elicit some kind of effect from the patient. So another one kind of related to purity is this idea of isomers. So an isomer, very basically speaking, it's like a form of a molecule which is very similar looking, but it is structurally slightly different. So an, an idea might be a chiral molecule. So it's like an almost like a mirror image of a molecule. And this matters because the way that a drug worked is often dependent on the way that it binds to components in our bodies, like enzymes. So enzymes, as you might know, they have an active site, which is a very, very specific shape. And they have to have that shape as this kind of part of this um, lock and key mechanism. So you need the key to be exactly the right shape to bind. And so if you don't have that correct isomer, then you're not going to have the correct mechanism occurring. And if a herbal remedy it contains a mixture, what we call racemic mixture of isomers, then we might have issues coming on down the line. So one really famous example of this is thalidomide, which you may know for causing um, disabling side effects of infants after pregnancy. And women take it for morning sickness and they ended up with very disabled babies who sometimes died from their disability. This was because one of the isomers in the thalidomide mixture was very harmful, whereas the other one was not. So knowing how to actually chemically ensure that we have the right isomer in a mixture is only really possible with a pharmaceutical technique. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the mechanism of thalidomide? Yeah, this example is so fascinating to me because not only did it, did it indicate that like isomer differences within the body it's crucial to make sure that we have the right one, but also uncovered a lot of issues with the ethics of prescribing drugs outside their intended purposes. So the issue with racemic mixtures, which essentially means you have the same molecules, but they're arranged different spatially um, or stereochemically, like um, Hanny mentioned earlier. In the 1900s, this kind of stereochemical difference that couldn't be determined like structurally um, or separated made racemic mixtures incredibly difficult to separate. And we didn't really have the techniques that we now have with like modern medicine using, you know, NMR and liquid chromatography and mass spec and all these things. But with thalidomide, it's specifically the S enantiomer that is teratogenic or causes all of these issues. And it was originally prescribed as an over-the-counter sedative in 1957, but later it was commonly prescribed for treating morning sickness in pregnant women. We now know that it's the S enantiomer of thalidomide that binds to an off-target, so it causes an off-target effect 
meaning that it's actually binding to something that it's not supposed to, which is then causing these problems. And more specifically, thalidomide binds to Cerebron, which is a component of the E3 ubiquitin ligase complex. For our non-science people, that's essentially that complex. It's a series of proteins that take the protein, it tags it, and it says, hey, you need to be degraded um, now because you're no longer serving the cell. And so when thalidomide binds to this protein, it prevents the endogenous substrates from binding. Essentially, it says, okay, you can no longer bind your target that you need to tag so that it can go be destroyed. You can't, tar- like, bind any of those proteins anymore. And so that leads to the accumulation of these proteins that either are misfolded or there's something wrong with them. And that can cause a lot, a lot of issues. What's really interesting though, is that this change, this binding of thalidomide to cerebron led to the recruitment of some very specific transcription factors. So proteins that transcribe your DNA, turn it from DNA to RNA. It recruited a couple of those transcription factors to this complex where it would be tagged for destruction. But these factors were involved with cell cycle and growth, which can be very, very detrimental. And it's actually one of the reasons we saw the side effects of like limbs being deformed or not being fully developed was because the transcription factors that are involved in the regulation of genes that assist with the cell growth of these appendages, they were being degraded too early. And ultimately, this led to, you know, 10,000 infants being born with this limb limb malformation or even defection, and only about half survived. So it was a really, really big issue that rose from something as simple as like a stereochemical difference, which is insane. The next thing is dosage. Actually, Hanny, why don't you take about this? Because you know more about that than I do. Sure. So we mentioned before this idea of terroir, which I'm mispronouncing. I'm sorry, anybody who's French, I apologize. Um, T-E-R-R-O-I-R. (laughs) It's basically this idea that if you grow a plant, the compounds in the plant are going to be influenced by things in the environment. So this could be things in the soil, it could be the level of moisture, it could be the amount of sunshine. All of these things are going to influence what's present in the plant that grows. And that makes it very, very difficult when you're creating herbal remedies because you don't know exactly the dose of whatever compound you have unless you have a method to test for it. So when they sell herbal remedies over the counter, they actually have to test for the specific amount of an active ingredient for this reason. So it's different when you're buying something in a shop versus making it yourself. It's just important to bear this in mind because this also applies to harmful compounds that are in a a plant. You don't know whether the dose of something that you harvest from one place is going to be the, the same as another, and it might be harmful if you don't test that first. The other reason why kind of we go towards pharmaceutics rather than herbalism is because we do our best to prevent as many negative side effects as possible. So medicinal chemistry, this is basically the foundation of medicinal chemistry. In this field, we we take a product, a lot of times natural, like naturally derived, and we change very specific functional groups to optimize their function. And this can be done, you know, many, many different ways from trying to increase binding affinity. This is remember how tightly something binds to a particular protein or an enzyme. A very important kind of factor if we're talking about like inhibitors or activators for enzymes, we can do this by altering functional groups that increase the proteolytic stability. So there are very, some very specific functional groups that lead to um, higher a higher rate of degradation or breakdown of specific molecules. And so we can change that to increase their stability, meaning that their proteolytic stability, meaning that they won't be degraded by proteases or just stability in general. Sometimes you can also increase stability in regards to clearance. So you can make something last in the blood longer, have a higher or a, a longer half half-life, which means that it stays within your blood system much longer than something that has a really small half-life and is is cleared uh, pretty quickly through your kidneys. And we can also make 
specific changes to actually lead to targeting very specific areas. I believe it's amines that target the brain very, like really, really well. I think it's because there's like amine receptors more commonly in the brain um, just because of the way that like dopamine and serotonin, some of those neurotransmitters are formulated, but I, I could be wrong there. It's just, it, feel free to double check me. But this idea of altering the specific functional groups to give us the kind of behavior that we want in a molecule is really, really exciting and also nice because it gives us the control rather than kind of just being left at the mercy of the plant and the natural product, which we kind of, you just like, you take it and you hope nothing bad happens because if it does, there's really nothing you can do about it, right? You just need to stop taking it because that will be like detrimental to your health. So so what do we think in general about if you're, if you're ill using pharmaceuticals versus using herbalism? What are, what are your thoughts about the kind of merits there versus the, the perils? Would you, do you trust herbalism for medical reasons? My initial reaction is no. Yeah, that's just mostly because, I don't know, I, I think I, tr- I trust doctors. <laughs> but I think a lot of people are very quick to dismiss herbalism and more holistic approaches. However, I want to let it be known that I think uh, doctors should be gone to first. <laughs> And nothing should be done without talking to a doctor first. Like, don't go out and start, like, eating a bunch of plants just because the internet told you to. Like, I, when I was younger, I actually went down a rabbit hole of engaging with the more fringe medicines. Things like, uh, like, there's that stupid thing. I hope it's still not popular. But there was, like, this idea, like, if you love using, like, baking soda on your hair. Yeah. <laughs> and he's nodding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, like, all the all those sort of, like, weird things. Like, I have a book that's kind of, it's kind of weird. I mostly use it because for recipes, for spiritual reasons than I do for actual medicinal reasons. But I went down, like, a really weird rabbit hole for a while when I was younger on distrusting doctors and herbalism and holistic medicine is the only thing but no that's not true and in some cases it can actually be very 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 detrimental to go down that path without proper knowledge on how to do so or talking to your doctor you know so that's my that's my thinking yeah okay because I'm a chemist like first of all I'm a biochemist and I've I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry and I know generally how it works and I've talked to people who who develop these drugs and there's there's a really big misconception that the people who are making these drugs don't care about the patient as an individual and that is incredibly false we may not see you as an individual because we're kind of in the background and we're, we're looking more at statistics and at, at our data in that way but almost every single person who goes into the pharmaceutical industry has a story or a reason behind why they decided to take this path and it's usually very very personal I won't get into mine just because of how personal it is but like I also have a very specific reason why I went into biochemistry in addition to loving the science there was a very personal reason behind that and so this idea idea that people who are involved in the pharmaceutical industry don't see you as human and don't care is ludicrous. We absolutely do. The people who are making these drugs behind the scenes see you as human. We, we know what we're treating and who we're treating. We realize that the drugs that we create are going to help people. That's always the kind of the goal and the goal that we have in mind when we develop these things. So I will always promote medication for the treatment of disease because it's selective and it's made to target very specific proteins or pathways and that's the most effective way to target and treat any kind of disease but i do think that herbalism and holistic medicine has its place and in regards to spirituality can offer a very unique treatment for both like your spiritual and your physical health typically when it comes to holistic medicine i would recommend more so like symptomatic treatment so for instance if you're going through chemotherapy and you're having a lot of really terrible symptoms because chemotherapy is very harsh in the body then some holistic medicine might be a good 
thing to be doing here to just try and decrease the severity of, of what you're experiencing. Of course, like cross reactions and all of that. Yeah, we have to like, get into that. But symptomatically, I think holistic medicine has a much better place. What's interesting, and I kind of struggle with this a little bit <laughs> within my like study of alchemical herbalism, is there's this idea that you can treat both the physical, mental, and spiritual all at once. And this is an example I pulled from a book that I'm reading. But say that someone comes to you describing symptoms of inflammation, immune system issues, a blood disorder, some irritability, frustration, and anger. Symbolically and alchemically speaking, these are all patterns both physically and spiritually with regards to the mood of the planet Mars who is the ruler of heat, inflammation, the blood, and immunity, and also correlates with emotions like anger, frustration, irritability, and so on. So based on the hermetic idea of as above, so below, you could say that they, as the person or the microcosm, are in a state of disharmony within the macrocosm or the celestial force, in this case being Mars. Um, and like now, this disharmony is manifesting itself both in soul and spirit and in their physical body. So as an alchemical herbalist, your goal would be to help them come into greater harmony with the celestial forces of Mars and its influence, essentially kind of help them evolve. And this could happen in many different ways, but my kind of caveat here is please don't discount like true medical mental health issues simply because you see some core like spiritual correlation. Those should still be addressed like with a doctor and discuss with them. But essentially what, what the outcome garbalist would then do is include suggestions of tinctures that utilize herbs also associated with Mars that would also assist in the symptoms that they're experiencing on a physical level. So you would, you would address both kind of the soul, spirit, and body all within the same time using multiple different methods. Now, I like this idea in theory. In practice, I'm a little more skeptical about how it would actually work. Um, and this is something that I'm doing kind of in my own practice is looking at this like from a very kind of scientific and skeptical point of view. But it's interesting to kind of see where people try to fit the spiritual and like scientific use of herbalism kind of together in this way. Not fully for it. I'm not fully against it. Still trying to kind of figure out where I stand there. Annie, what about you? I agree. I, I also have very mixed feelings. And I think I agree with you about this idea of distrust of the pharmaceutical industry. I think a lot of the distrust actually comes from the way that pharmaceuticals are marketed, which is really related to the drug development pipelines. They tend to be very, very low, long, inexpensive drug development pipelines because they have to go through, much, through so much rigorous safety testing, which we'll talk about. Um, and that means that the investment has to be very high. So the drug pricing is very is also very high and is funded by a capitalist means which are unjust but I won't go into that. Anyway that kind of level of distrust kind of transfers over to distrust of the science which I personally don't think is necessarily valid. However I understand why culturally it is there and I understand why people have this fear of the system. However I do think we have to see herbalism as it, it's drugs, it's plants are drugs, they are dangerous, natural things are not necessarily better for you simply because they are natural. And I do like the idea of working with plants spiritually, but I think it's important that, to remember that there's a big divide between the material and the spiritual. And so if you are if you have a physical material illness, you need to use physical material means that work for it. And don't just assume that a spiritual method will work because, I don't know, this is a skeptic in me, but I really think that it's important that you um, seek out genuine medical treatment and spiritual things can assist in that, whether that's placebo or not, is down to your own model. But yeah, please see a doctor if you're unwell, <laughs> at least at least to work on incorporating the herbal, herbalism in a safe way. 
And if you want to go a more holistic route, there are doctors who will work with you like to do that. Utilize them for their experience. If you want to take something, then talk to your doctor and be like, hey, I've done a lot of research into this. I think it would be useful. Like, what do you think? And then they they might not know automatically, to be first of all, because they aren't all knowing. But they had definitely have the tools to research and see if any, like, if what you want to take maybe has any cross reactions with the drugs that you're currently taking, the dosage at which it would be safe for you to take. Like, they can help you figure all of that out. And so talking to your doctor is really the best way to incorporate herbal remedies into your own medical routine if you want to. So that's definitely something you should address with them. Okay. Now we're going to get into one of my favorite things to talk about, <laughs> which is how pharmaceuticals are tested and then also kind of the limitations when it comes to testing herbal remedies, which is why they are, I guess, like less safe. So the first thing I want to touch upon, and this this is not only for, for herbal remedies. I mean, I see this in other things like essential oils and like CBD oil and all this kind of stuff. It's really, there are like three levels of kind of like verification when it comes to the FDA or the Federal Drug Administration. Herbal remedies are not required to be FDA approved, first of all. And in the case of home remedies, many of them aren't even like FDA registered or listed. I do want to briefly say that being FDA registered or like listed really doesn't mean anything (laughs) other than the fact that you've like sent the FDA letter saying, hey, I have this product that like does x thing that's literally all you need to do if somebody says something is fda registered to try and like hype it up and make it seem like more legitimate it's not that literally means nothing so keep that in mind (laughs) but pharmaceuticals go through very very rigorous tests to ensure both their efficacy and determine if there are any poor responses to drugs and this is typically done in clinical trials but before we talk about clinical trials i kind of want to back up a little bit and walk you through the entire process from start to finish so in the pharmaceutical industry we start with this idea of drug discovery and in drug discovery we do a lot of the medicinal chemistry where we take a drug we either synthesize it or base it off of a natural product and we make the specific changes to get something that we think will work well and bind to what we want bind with you know good affinity have effect great let's like move forward to test it so the first way we do this is to test something in vitro now in vitro translated from latin means within the glass and essentially all that means is that we're performing a procedure in a very controlled environment outside of a living organism these studies are typically done in prokaryotes or single-celled organisms like bacteria um, or in eukaryotic cell lines, like mammalian cell lines, typically a very specific like tissues to give us a very basic idea of the efficacy of this drug and of any potential off-target effects. One of the issues with in vitro experiments is that they really fail to replicate the precise cellular conditions of an organism. A cell cultured in a very specific environment under favorable conditions for growth is going to behave very, very differently than cells that are in your body. Just by nature of the fact that your body has like been through some shit and these cells have not. Typically we give them like the best positions that they need in order to grow and to grow well. So there's going to be a difference there. Let's say everything works really well in vivo. I do want to mention here that a lot of drugs actually fail at this stage. The in vivo or the in vitro testing Many drugs will have severe offset, like off-target effects, or if the binding is like really, really terrible and they don't kind of see any kind of efficacy. A lot of drugs die at this point. So you've done all this work in the medicinal side, you test them in vitro in cell lines and it doesn't work. And so you're like, okay, scrap it. We're going to start over. Um, oh, I just want to interject as well. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I want to mention there's actually 
a lot of evidence for herbal remedies at the in vitro stage, but that doesn't mean that they're effective. And so often people might pull up a paper and say, oh, look, there's a paper in the peer-reviewed journal. It says that elderberry syrup works really well for you know respiratory infections. And then you look at the paper and it's like, oh, we tested this against like Staph aureus invasion in a hamster cell line. Like that is not the same as testing something in a human body. And so when you're looking at the literature, just please be aware of the difference between these different kinds of studies, because just because something is published doesn't necessarily mean it's the same standard of evidence. Yeah, absolutely. That translation between in vitro to clinical is not, it is not linear. And oftentimes it's not even close to being the same, but we'll touch on that a little later. So after you do an in vitro study, let's say everything works, you get really good binding, you get really good efficacy, there's no off-target effects, great, let's move on. The next step is an in vivo study. So in vivo means within the living, and that just refers to experimentation using a living organism. Now, animal studies and clinical trials are both technically different levels of, of in vivo research. We separate them usually because clinical trials are in humans and, you know, kind of like Kenny was mentioning in terms of in vitro studies, the results from animal studies do not always correlate to the results you see in clinical trials. When I was working at a pharmaceutical company um, in an internship during the summer, this was like the main point my advisor beat into my head. I will never forget it. A lot of pathways are very similar between animals and humans. And the higher kind of the organizational level that you go, the more similar. So like a mouse and a human are going to be more different than say a chimpanzee and a human. But each organism has a very specific genome, a very specific transcriptome, or that's like the collection of their RNA, and a very specific proteome or the collection of proteins. So there might be similarities, like similarities, but it's actually really, really common to have a drug fail to translate from an animal study to clinical trials and, you know, fail during the, the initial phase one clinical trial because that translation is just like, it's not similar enough, or there's maybe something in the human body that didn't exist within the animal. And that is serving as like an, as the off target effect that can be maybe really detrimental. And so we say, well, in humans, this drug isn't safe because it's causing this other horrible reaction. So that's something that we also have to be really careful about. Results in vitro do not translate to animals or humans, and in results in vivo also don't always translate perfectly to humans. Which is why when we do get a drug that translates really well from an animal study to a human, everybody is super excited because that's, it doesn't happen as often as people think it does. Annie, do you want to talk about maybe RCTs? Because I feel like I've talked for hours. <laughs> Yeah, so randomized controlled trials, uh, basically they are a respective study that measures the effectiveness of a new treatment. And the randomized part means that you basically subsection part of your um, cohort that you're testing and you assign them to either placebo or the test group. And then usually they're blinded so that your group doesn't know whether they're a member of the test group or the placebo group. And that way you can see if you have an effect, as we talked about in the placebo episode, we definitely know that it's due to the drug that was being provided. So it's quite helpful because we don't have the bias associated with the placebo. So if somebody's taking a herbal remedy every day, they might kind of placebo themselves into thinking that it's working. Whereas if we can compare like for like between two cohorts, then we know for sure that it's our molecule of interest. The only issue with randomized controlled trials, although they're what we consider the gold standard because they're in a human population that's kind of generally representative, they might not be representative of the entire population. So some examples are often um, clinical trials have been performed in, in uh, white people or white males in particular. So there might be differences between the biochemistry between women and men, for example. 
they might also not incorporate um, other environmental factors um, and confounders which can alter our results. So they are the gold standard, but there are also limitations that are important to bear in mind. I also wanted to ask, ask maybe about how safely, how can we safely engage with herbal remedies? Maybe Phil, I don't know if you want to talk about like that a little bit, like how, how can we safely use um, plants and herbs? That's a hard question. I honestly, I, th I, th I think nothing should be done without, you know, consulting with a, a medical practitioner. So I guess one of the things that I'll bring up is so therapy that I have started to engage with over the last several years is more of a psychosomatic type of therapy, which they find to be especially useful in individuals with trauma. And one of the things of psychosomatic therapy is there can be overlaps with herbal herbal medicine or alter, alternative medicine, things like acupuncture or or dealing with a different medical paradigm, often taking from Eastern medicine model as opposed to the, the Western medicine model. So I do have some experiences with that side of things. However, the main thing is, is, you know, <laughs> the person that I work with is like has her graduate degree in these kinds of like they offer degrees in like Chinese medicine, for example. So like she is heavily trained and attends lectures every week. <laughs> and so it's not just it's not like I'm just going to some person off the street and being like, oh, I found you online and you said you've been practicing for X number of years. Show me a degree <laughs> from not just magical university, from well-known and accredited places, which they do exist. It's it's not like even where I am, there actually is a school that offers, I think it's like holistic therapy, which includes elements of herbalism and other forms of what one would look like uh, coinciding with medicine. And when you engage with like a mental, a mental health practitioner, usually you sort of have like a team. So I have a team that includes her and also my doctor, like they talk. Uh, my doctor is also sort of involved in this little team. And for a while, I also had a nutritionist, which can overlap with some more plant-based remedies or, or shifting the, the literal eating of plants and how that affects not only your physical health, but your mental health as well. Yeah. So you just like, don't just go to like some random person off the street. And I honestly don't think people should really, uh, if you're going to engage with herbalism yourself, seek out classes. You can't half-ass herbalism in my opinion i think you you have to really dive deeply just because it's natural doesn't mean it's it's safe i mean yeah that's that's i think something that people forget <laughs> that would be my my thoughts on that i definitely like what you said about people who practice kind of these specific like area like if you wanted to specialize in chinese medicine for instance like it's totally fine for you to go to somebody if they claim that they are an expert in something to say okay like show me a degree or like show me where you got your training or, you know all of these things because it's important that the person that you're trusting to treat you like actually knows what they're doing um otherwise you could get yourself into some serious some serious problems so don't be afraid to require some kind of like verification that they've taken classes and they've like been educated appropriately and you know so on and so forth i will also say that i think self-education only goes so far in this topic um, there's a lot of kind of aspiring herbalists, I think, within the spiritual community who have taught themselves a lot of what they know. And I think you can teach yourself a lot 
and I, you know, admire the people who have gone to the lengths to do so. But you can only teach yourself so much. And anybody who kind of wants to go into herbalism, I think, doesn't maybe enjoy the scientific aspect of it. That's going to be an issue for you coming, you know, down the line because the science and herb, like, they go hand in hand and you can't separate them and you shouldn't separate them. So I think eventually, if you really are serious about becoming an herbalist and maybe opening some kind of, like, holistic treatment, you really need to go get trained with people who know what they're doing and to make sure not only to keep yourself safe, but also to keep the people that you help safe. The oils that we make, like, a lot of people make spell oils and stuff, right? And spell oils are different. I think those are fine because most of us are just, like, using it on candles and shit. But, like, if you are going to ingest anything or if you're going to, like, topically treat yourself with any kind of oil that you make, I'm please be very, very careful. Know what you're doing. Those kind of things can have very disastrous consequences if you aren't careful. That's a really good point, actually. Like, there are lots of safer ways that you can engage with plants. Like, um, a lot of the herbalism books I've read um, recommend actually just meditating with the plant itself maybe putting it under your pillow, putting it under your bed, putting it in your room. Like, obviously, this isn't safe for everything, so do your research. But rather than ingesting it, there are lots of ways to engage with plants in a kind of more spiritual way that don't involve you ingesting something potentially poisonous. So that might be a safe place to start until you feel like you're a little bit more educated on the, the harms that could come to you. So we talked about how drugs are typically tested, but now let's talk about some of the difficulties of testing herbal remedies. So kind of the biggest one is that double blindness is impossible because the person who's making the herbal remedy will know exactly who they're giving things to. And that can lead to bias toward believing that the remedy will work. But also it's typically like holistic healing is more of a like, Comp it, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's not simply just the drug itself. And so that can also kind of overcomplicate things and make it very difficult to pinpoint exactly what's going on here. Kind of like what Fel was talking about, how she has like, she had a nutritionist and also this like herbal remedist and also her doctor, like well, all of those things will impact it. And so it's very hard to like say specifically that it's maybe your remedy that's causing these changes. There's a lack of defined or measurable targets. Like we talked about, herbal remedies are typically very complex mixtures. You could have multiple parts of that mixture maybe affecting multiple pathways. And we don't actually have like within the kind of like herbalism world, I don't think we have the proper tools to like say this particular molecule is targeting this particular receptor. Like we just, we don't have that level of like um, specifics that we can get with, within the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and so we can't directly correlate the herbal remedy to a particular target. One of the big ones we touched upon this earlier is product standardization. Within the pharmaceutical industry, when a drug is developed, there is a protocol put in place and that is followed every single time. And so your result is always consistent. And there's typically like a certain threshold of purity that you must obtain, like 95%. And if it's anything below that, it's not considered good enough and you have to start over. When it comes to herbal remedies, it they will vary from person to person and from batch to batch. And so that kind of standardized practice is going to be really, really hard because the plants aren't always going to grow the same. The harvesting might be different. The amount that you harvest each time could be different. Like there's a lot of factors that will play a role in making that standardization of the development of the herbal remedy very difficult. And then finally is a selection of controls. And actually I found this from reading a paper and it made a really interesting point, which was that when you do any kind of like randomized control study, and we, we always want to have kind of the placebo. We always want to have the, the actual test group. But when it comes to herbal remedies, making a placebo is actually really, really hard because there are factors in herbal remedies that we don't necessarily have to deal with in the pharmaceutical industry where like typically if you have, you're being given a medicine, it's either coming in pill form or it's like a very clear solution and with like no smell or anything. And so the placebo could simply be like saline, right? But with the herbal remedy, a lot of times they have a smell, they have a color, um, they might have a very particular taste 
And the example they gave in this paper was the use of ginger. So ginger has a very distinct smell, has a very distinct taste. How are you going to replicate that um, as part of the placebo without using ginger? I don't know if anybody has thoughts on that. I thought about it for a while and I was like, I don't know how you would replicate that without using ginger. People have ideas, you know, feel free to let us know. But yeah, so those are the limitations. But just because there are limitations, I don't think that means that we can't trust herbalism at all. What do you guys think about that? I think that it's a good basis for medicine, like medical development. But I personally would always go to a doctor first. And I think it has to be seen in a much more holistic sense. I, I, I think it's very, very dangerous when you're working with things that are actually drugs. Like, let's bear in mind, these are actually active drugs in these plants. So um, you need to be quite well educated before you engage in using these as medicine. And in my mind, it can't be separated from um, pharmaceutical usage. Yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> Go to a doctor first, always. And I liked what you were saying about how one can look at herbalism as a a symptomatic approach as opposed to like a diagnostic approach. That's one of the things that I work with when I'm doing psychosomatic therapy treatment. I mean, obviously like the diagnoses I have are addressed from a diagnostic perspective, but it's more of the the symptoms of what I'm experiencing are the things that tend to be addressed. So for example, I struggle a lot with like chronic fatigue and no doctor has ever been able to figure that out. So there are certain things that like I've been tested for and I've gone to doctors for that are just, we're, st- we're still in limbo. So in that example, I'm able to approach that from a, a more holistic perspective and, and from a, a different paradigm than just like, like there's no drug that I can take, at least right now, <laughs> that I that will make me feel better for that example. So in that case, I am addressing the symptom from that more holistic perspective and from a more alternative perspective. And of course, done with consideration of other problems that I have and also bearing in mind any issues that the the treatment itself can or could cause. If you're if you are getting things looked at, make sure they're looking at the whole picture and are in communication with a doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's my thought on yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, there are some diseases that we don't have treatments for, and it sucks to like say and admit that. Like as a, as a biochemist, that physically pains me. Um, I really hate that there are things that people have to suffer through that we can't fix. But you know, in those instances, there are sometimes herbal remedies that work and work well. And in those cases, I think then, yes, please like use what is available to you. Do so safely, of course, get it, you know, confirmed by a doctor and so on and so forth. But if we don't have a medical treatment for it and all we can do currently is treat the symptoms and make you more comfortable, then use an herbal remedy to do that. And there's no shame in that. No one should invalidate that treatment for you if that's like what you choose to go with. And so, you know, herbal remedies, they have their place. I think it's more with with like symptomatic treatment or, you know, helping with the, the diseases that maybe don't have a cure yet. But yeah, you know, as biased as I am, in all fairness, toward the pharmaceutical side of things, I think it would be really unfair of me to say that that herbalism is just like some pseudoscience crap that no one should should even consider because that's not true. There is validity in that practice. Yeah, I think there's this whole like animist model that we haven't really talked about. We'll probably talk about a little bit later about kind of the spirit of the plant and working with those. And I don't want to dismiss those out of hand. I just think it's important to separate when we're talking about medicine and physical medicine. We need to understand that we're talking about physical pathways that are being modified. I was kind of curious about this idea 
of using herbalism in a kind of safe way, so using chemistry to make that safer. So, for example, datura is one example of something that is really quite dangerous to work with because it's, I believe it's a nightshade and can cause issues with your heart. However, you could potentially use the synthetic kind of fantasy note, which um, basically evokes the scent of datura without actually having to use the plant. And I was kind of wondering on your perspective of is the nature of the plant inherent to its physicality, inherent to its actual chemical properties? Or is there something in the, the kind of way that it makes you feel? Like, would it be possible to use a synthetic to evoke that feeling in yourself and still work with it successfully? Does that make sense? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> no, that does make sense. And I think it's something that, you know, people think about or people should think about in general, when people do spells that involve vanilla, are you really working with vanilla bean? <laughs> so I, I think it, it, or a lot of incenses are synthetic. For me, I try to, if I am engaging with a plant, which is why I tend to use plants for my own backyard, <laughs> because I like to work with the plant as a whole. And I don't really do, I don't do poison path. I don't think I ever will. For me, most of the benefit comes from using the plant as a whole. But I do, you know, burn incense that's like synthetic, like synthetic lavender or whatever. And, you know, if you're using vanilla, are you, yeah, like I said, are you really going to use the bean? I feel like, wow, I guess you're really investing your spell work if you are. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. So I'm of two minds with this. I, I think it's better to work with the whole plant and not necessarily a synthetic but then again, I, I am biased to using the plants that I use in my own backyard and, and can see from their whole life cycle. But I could also see a case being made for using synthetic, like synthetic vanilla. Yeah, that's just my thought on that. This topic is really interesting. And it's been discussed in a couple of like Discord servers that I'm in. I do think that in spell work, the more natural, the better. Um, just because I think then your connection to kind of the, the properties of the plants or the earth that you're working with, or even even the spice, if, if that's, you know, what you're working with too. I think it's stronger if you have like the actual natural product in front of you. Um, and those, the, the maybe feelings or the thoughts that it kind of evokes from you as a practitioner will be more intense. That's not to say that like using something synthetic makes your magic worse. And that's not, I don't think that's true. Um, some practitioners are like of this thought that if you use anything, anything like synthetic, you're an imposter and like, you're not doing your own magic and you know, whatever. That's not, I don't think that's accurate. You know, if you, you have on hand, if that means that you're using like synthetic, maybe Jasmine is part of your spell, but you don't have any Jasmine with you because Jasmine can actually be kind of expensive depending on how you're purchasing it and you decide to use jasmine incense instead and like it's synthetic that's fine like it's still it's still the scent of jasmine and it's still going to elicit very similar feelings so that's totally like legit but yeah i definitely like in spell work i do try to use natural products over synthetic just because i think in general like my relationship with them is stronger and i do think it maybe enhances my magic a bit but if that if you don't have it then i don't think it really alters anything you know too significantly I guess, yeah, it also depends on what you're using it for. Like, I think, obviously, if you're working with plant spirits, then you definitely want to be growing the plant and working physically with it to see all its growth phases, because that's really part of, like, interacting with that spirit. But I can kind of see a case for, if you're looking for a really specific correspondence, maybe trying to narrow down how you can um, get your lavender to produce a more invigorating effect with um, more kind of camphorous blends versus a more soothing effect with kind of more floral blends or if you're just using it for an offering maybe you just want something that smells sweet I had somebody bring up that like 
is the artifice maybe doesn't really matter if you're using it for that purpose. So it kind of depends, but I, I do think it's an interesting path to go down. And as we think of like modernizing spirituality and how it, how it evolves over time, I do think that synthetics might become more like more of part of people's practice. Yeah, I will say I, I think synthetics only goes so far. Like, I don't know, this might sound kind of classist and elitist. And if it doesn't, <laughs> don't intend it to come off that way. But like, I've, I've heard of people using like pictures and stuff in their spell work, like pictures of a plant or pictures of something like that. And then their spell work to represent, you know, that particular energy, you know, ugh. If that's all you have, I think that that's fine. Again, usually you have. I'll always be that'll be kind of the biggest like first first thing. But I do think that if you can get your hand on the real thing, it's going to be better. Not only in terms of like maybe this it'll enhancing the magic itself, but also that it'll make you feel, I think, better as a practitioner. Like imposter syndrome is already very real within the craft, and I think sometimes like not being able to have that very direct connection to what you're working with can enhance that you know tenfold even and it's like well I didn't feel anything nothing seemed to happen like am I really even doing anything I think kind of you know having those relationships with the plants that you're working with puts that to the side a little bit more than say printing off a picture and tying it to a candle and letting it burn you know aside from the, the from the fire safety issues that that you know brings into play here but yeah so that's, that's a very interesting um, discussion and if people have thoughts on that that you want to leave kind of on our Instagram um, you can find us at test tubes and cauldrons Go feel free to leave a comment and we can we can talk through that with you. All right. Anything else? Go to a doctor if you're ill, please. <laughs> and you haven't heard us say it enough. Talk to your doctor. They're important. They know what they're talking about. Okay. Well, that's the end of this episode then. We will call it and close it. Thank you so much for listening, for sticking with us through this whole thing. We hope you learned a thing or two. And again, if you have comments or questions or you want to just talk to us about the topic, you can find us on Instagram at Test Tubes and Cauldrons. Same picture as the one you see um, in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so it should be hopefully pretty easy to find. We do post on there every single day of the week. Lots of kind of just like fun, random, random stuff. Typically hinting at the next episode, not always. So if you want to try and figure it out ahead of time, that can be a fun little game you play. But yeah, we will see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.